Hey, what's up? This is Christopher Stolle of Realm of the Mist Entertainment. The podcast you are listening to is part of the SJ Network. Go to s-j-network.com. That's s-j-network.com for more great podcasts and information on those shows, as well as information and an ability to contact publicist Steve Joyner for more information. Just go to the website and check out the family, ladies and gentlemen. Until then, enjoy the show. Hungry Trilobite Podcast would like to acknowledge conventions such as WeedonCon. WeedonCon is a fan-generated charity event for Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Angel, Firefly, and all Joss Whedon creations. It is scheduled for October of 2020 and is held in Los Angeles, California. Portion of the proceeds benefit the Los Angeles LGBT Center as well as the Ron Glass Memorial Scholarship. See details at WeedonCon.com. Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bossig, and I'm going to be your host. I am a huge movie fan, as you well know, and today I have the distinct honor and, to be honest, guilty pleasure of talking to Joe Alves, who is an amazing talent in the film industry from a directing and production design standpoint, and I'm going to get started right away. On mic today, I have the honor of talking to Joe Alves. How are you doing today, good sir? It's good. It's very hot in California right now. It's pretty hot in Oklahoma, too. I'm just not sure we can compare notes there. (laughs) Mr. Alves, I am a huge fan of your work on the Jaws series, but I have to tell you, I'm a really, really big fan of Escape from New York. Ah, Escape from New York. Yes. So um, I I, I have been wanting to talk to somebody about that movie for ages, and this is a chance I'm finally getting. Great. I'm open. Anything you want to ask? Well, uh, when I heard the, the description of it being derelict in in on a grand scale, is is that what uh, how you describe it? No, actually, you know, I got involved with uh, John uh, Carpenter and Deborah Hill uh, because of my agent Phil Gersh, and mm-hmm. what, what happened was. After Jaws 2, well, I directed a, a small sequence in Jaws 1. And then on Jaws 2, I became a social producer, production designer, second unit director. They fired the first director. I brought in Jino Schwark. So I directed 85 uh, days of second unit. So I was really pursuing uh, directing. Uh, and uh, there was a movie I had called Out in Front. It was about Formula One driving. And Bill Gilmore was an executive of this con- company, and we traveled uh, to all the Formula One uh, locations, uh, Monte Carlo, you know, France, England. And uh, I had uh, Jim Brolin was going to play the older driver and then a younger driver. So this is all really pretty exciting. And um, got back, and the company got sold out to somebody else and whatever. So that project was gone. Uh, and then uh, a couple, a week or two later, my father died and it was just wow. a depressing time. And Phil Gersh called me uh, because I had been pr- pursuing directing and uh, sort of turning down design jobs, substantial ones actually. 
So he called me, he says, Joe, I think it's time that you go back to work. And uh, he says, I have a young couple that, you know, he represented. And um, I think, you know, you should meet them. So I met John and Deborah. Now they had done what Halloween and, you know, very small movies, successful, but maybe $300,000, you know, and I'm coming off of Close Encounters and Jaws 2 and, you know, multi-million dollar movies. So this was their big movie, I think five, six million dollars. And I met with them and, and I liked John. Uh, John was sort of laid back, you know, he just, yeah, okay, this is good. Deborah was very aggressive. Uh, Got to get this going. This so I, being sort of production designer, uh, a director, producer, I was, we, we got to get going. We got to find locations, what, you know. So um, Barry Bernardi was the location scout. And I said, well, what, what have we been scouting? Well, we haven't really, everything was just sort of low key. These are different generation, you know, just sort of laid back. This was in 1980. And uh, I said, well, there's a big scene where we need a bridge and a wall. So probably if we could find a bridge that nobody's using and then we could build a wall and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, uh, we ended up finding something in St. Louis. Found a bridge that nobody was using, good substantial bridge. And I thought, well, I could just build a wall. So I ended up building a 200 foot wall, I don't know, 25, 30 feet high. But then we also found uh, a wonderful old trade station that nobody was using. So it had a really good texture. And then New York, John and Larry Franco, who was a first assistant, we went to New York and we climbed, we went up to the towers, the Twin Towers that were still there. And we looked at New York and God, this is just too much for this movie to, to capture New York. So what we found in St. Louis, it was this urban renewal that there was this whole downside, downtown section that was being, you know, not used. And so we had pretty much control of doing whatever we wanted with it. And I had a, a good decorator. I'd never worked with her before or since actually, was Claudia. So working with John, uh, you know, I would plan all this. Now this was different for him because I don't think he had a production designer that was so quite aggressive, you know. And I'm coming from doing so many shows and doing night galleries. I did 25 sets a week and uh, the, the directors had maybe a day or two to, uh, so they pretty much shot what I, I gave them, you know. And uh, so I sort of had that attitude and, and John was perfectly fine with it. Um, so that's how it started. And uh, then it went uh, from shot to shot. Do, do you have any questions? I could go on about it. I'm, I'm, I'd love you to go on about it because this okay. is all fascinating well, for me. Here's a, the situation. Um, it was low budget relatively to me, mm -hmm. but it had, Dean Cundy was a heck of a cameraman. I mm -hmm. mean, I really admired his work. For an example, I built the United States police uh, area, their, their uh, uh, sort of offices and stuff. 
in uh, San Fernando Valley at, at, the, uh, at the dam there. And I made it very militant, very black, because it was United States police. So we had uh, these various sort of A-frame structures, black and white, but we built a, an entry structure, uh, and it was where you come in to sign in. And uh, so we built that, we collapsed it. This is how inexpensive we wanted things to be. We trucked it all the way over to Liberty Island. And we took the last ferry out so we didn't have to get our own boat. Mm -hmm. And we set that structure up. And Tommy Atkins, the actor, came down, was a long shot uh, of the Statue of Liberty. He came down, walked down there, and go to the entrance post. He signed in, and then he walked in. And as he panned across, there's United States police, you know, there was a section of black. And Dean cut there. And then we packed the thing up, we shipped, we trucked it back, we set it up in, in California and at the Sepulveda Dam. He put the camera in the same position and then moved it. So there was like, like no cut. It was just mm -hmm. went from New York to California and no tricky effects. It was just good camera work. So then Tommy comes out and now we're in New York. So that, that whole complex was supposed to be on Liberty Island. So that was one situation that was, um, that worked out really good. And so we were, and John was getting, I think, more familiar with working with me and, and the crew. And, and so uh, I would uh, lay some things out. Like there was a shot of uh, an airplane crashed. And, uh, and, and, you know, what's his name? Um, the actor, uh, I just I lost uh, it. Kurt Russell? Kurt. Yeah, so Kurt walks in front of the crashed airplane. So I went to, I needed airplane parts. So I went to uh, Arizona where they have a huge field of airplanes and parts and things. And I uh, was making a list of things I needed, a wing, a tail section. And this guy there said, you know, uh, there's a DC-8 for sale. Now that's a prop, that prop plane, but if you took the props off, it would look like, uh, you know, a jet. I said, well, where is it? And he says, it's for sales are like only 5,000 bucks. It's in St. Louis. I thought, oh my God, what luck. <laughs> so I canceled everything that I was ordering there. We went to St. Louis, we bought it for like $5,000. And Ward Welton, who was my painter on most pictures, was doing a lot of the lead work in the uh, construction. So he cut it up in pieces and trucked it in at night so we didn't even have to pay for permits. I mean, we were just doing things under the table. So this was interesting. So John was saying, okay, what are we shooting today? Oh, we're shooting Joe's shot. So my shot basically was to start off this real, you know, rubble area, and then you pan across and you see Kurt, you know. So um, that that was the shot, and uh, so we set it on fire, so it looked like it just crashed. Took the props off. It looked really good. So I said, Don said cut. So I tell Roy Arbogast, who's my special effects guy, 
was actually with me on Jaws one and two and three and and he uh, he actually did the uh, much of the uh, physical look of, of the shark, the skin and all that on Jaws. Anyway, so I I, uh, I told Roy, I said, cut, 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 put the fire out. He says, I can't, it's magnesium, you know, it keeps burning. Mm -hmm. I told John, okay, we've got to rush and get take two. So basically, that that's how it went. I mean, it was pretty much uh, shot by shot, setting things up. Uh, the pod, uh, I remember... John says, we put the president in a pod, so if the plane crashes, he's safe. So I made this sort of egg-shaped thing and painted it orange, and then we put it in this rubble, and, and uh, you know, uh, decorator just loaded up this whole area with just rubble and junk and stuff. Claudia did that, so it was great. Anyway, so then we got the egg, and uh, and that's where the president was supposed to be, but the egg was missing. Uh, it, it pretty much went that way. Uh, we built most of the stuff in uh, St. Louis, a location for one night in New York, and then pretty much uh, did, oh, I know. So we couldn't afford a stage, you know, we just trying to, bring the budget down. Mm -hmm. Lexington Avenue, I built a wall, Kurt Russell jumps over the wall and he goes to the chock full of nuts. And he turns and goes inside the chock full of nuts. Well, I built that in, uh, in the desert. They have, as it were, we, we would shoot a Paramount lot, just areas that we could shoot movies. So I actually built the whole front of Chock Full of Nuts. And then he comes in and uh, he finds that girl there. In any case, John had the ability, as did Alfred Hitchcock, to shoot half sets. In other words, you know, with Hitch, you just built what you were going to shoot. And he, he had it all planned in his head with a lot of directors you build everything and then they walk on the set and say, oh shit, this, and then they don't, you don't see half of it, you know? So, um, anyway, I built the chock full of nuts and if you would have panned just a few feet to the left, you would see cactus from the desert Orient or pan here. So, I mean, he, in other words, he was so easy to work with that you could say, this is it. For some directors, you said, well, gee, I, I need a little bit more here, or I don't have a reverse. John would say, okay, this is what I got. So he, he comes from Halloween and stuff like that were really, really low budget. They didn't build anything to getting stuff to shoot. Another thing we built was a, or the helicopter, not the helicopter, the, uh, the glider lands on the top of the Trade Center. And so we, uh, we built that in the desert. And that's another thing. You pan over here, you'd see cactus. So we did that and we had a helicopter. Uh, let me tell you, there was a lot of good effects in that movie. Uh, 
And I took John and Deborah to meet with uh, a Fex guy, I'll think of his name soon, uh, who did uh, Star Wars. Mm -hmm. He was a guy I had worked with before. And we went and met, uh, met them and we came out of the meeting and, and Deborah said, oh, it's too expensive. We, we, you know, we can't afford that. Uh, how are we going to do all these visual effects? So I was at a, a party, this friend of mine, uh, Guy Magar, was a, a director, did small movies, and I had known him before he got directing jobs, and we had some projects we were going to do together. He's a writer. And he was doing this monster kind of show, and he had this young guy who was making the, the monsters and doing illustrations for him. And the, the young kid's name was uh, John Cameron, or Jim Cameron. Mm -hmm. And so Cameron said, uh, well, look, at I work at Ronnie Har uh, Harper's. Uh, I'm losing some names here. And, um, and we could do it for you there or do it much cheaper. So anyway, he got the first gig. And so he became a, obviously a huge director, you know, mm -hmm. but that was, so he actually worked for us. Uh, and uh, uh, Roger Corman, Roger Corman, he was working for Roger Corman, a lot of young directors started there, Scorsese. And, uh, so Roger Corman's company uh, did all the visual effects. So the plane climb, uh, gliding through New York was all done there, uh, miniature, and then it lands and then we had a plane that we would drag across. So that was, uh, that was pretty interesting to get Jim Cameron, uh, and then later, you know, he went on to do so many, you know, huge movies. Um, so that's that's pretty pretty much it. Uh, anything? Uh, what what I what's you're saying that's really striking out at me is is when you're talking about uh, Mr. Carpenter looking at what you want to build and saying I need this part of the. the the, the set and I need you to build this and that means that he has in his head exactly what he, the shots are already there he yeah. just has to put them on film and I find that that's real talent in my mind and then he could say that to somebody like you and you could just translate that into wood and nails and and knock that right out exactly and and we could go to a location that we had a, a, you know and and walk around and say okay I need this much so that Claudia didn't have to decorate the whole place. Mm -hmm. we, we knew the helicopters are landing here, so do a, a lot of junk here where they land. And then they turn over here and they walk down this alley. So uh, it, was, um, it was a fun movie to do. Uh, and uh, it was uh, trading things. I remember uh, Larry Franco, we were on the bridge and I was bringing in trucks and things uh, with a forklift. And he said, no, I need the forklift. It was not like we didn't have two forklifts. We had mm -hmm. one. So we had to trade off when he needed to move a car mm -hmm. and I had to bring things in. Uh, so what was good about it, it was a tight show. It was, uh, we shot some stuff we never used. Matra in uh, Atlanta, we shot a sequence there that, wasn't, that was cut out for some reason. 
and then the the time watch. Do you have one of those? I do not. Hang on a second. I'll be right back. All right. I was doing a thing called with Sideshow. They do a lot of stuff. And they gave me this. Whoa. That is a work of art right there. Isn't that cool? That is. I don't know if the battery's low. There's a battery in here, but yeah. I, I mean, it's really nice leather and mm -hmm. and that's what the snake wore. Right. For the countdown. Mm -hmm. I, I, these are available somewhere. I, I don't know. But uh, I, I think anybody who is uh, a fan of the movie would probably like to have one of these. I, I would definitely agree with that. That's because uh, that that timepiece is iconic there. So it just. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't realize it was so damn big. So yeah, these big arms. So uh, that was sort of interesting, you know. And, and what I'm I'm loving about. And when you're saying that you could just make exactly what you see, I, I find it much more rewarding to look at a movie like that where every all the shots are uh, practical and you're wor working with camera work and editing compared to the movies today that use a lot more CG, which has its own place. But I, I just find that a movie like that, you get to the suspense of disbelief a lot faster. What happens with CG, I have nothing against CG, but so much is done in CG. Mm -hmm. You know, for an example, Close Encounters. That was the biggest set. Uh, uh, it was huge. It was a football field wide, a football field half long. And uh, Stephen, uh, earlier this year, I was getting an award and he, he did a video and he said that was a, still the biggest set he ever worked on. But for an example, uh, when uh, Melinda Dillon and Dreyfus runs up the hill and then they look over and they see the big arena, Today, they would do that all in green screen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I built a mountain, seven stories on rollers that we could roll around. And Doug Trumbull was doing the visual effects. And we had a 150 foot front projection screen. So we shot that stuff in 65. So you would lose any definition. But, but we had physical sets. So they had to climb up the set. We did locations in Devil's Tower. Uh, and then this this rock that I made would would match that. So just uh, that's what happens then. Mm -hmm. They uh, because they do it in green screen, uh, they're getting a little bit better. But my problem with with it is that because they could do it so easy, if you had a car crash before. You have two or three cars crashing. Now they could do a hundred cars crashing, mm -hmm. you know, and freight trains flipping over, and it, it becomes too much. Mm -hmm. And so you lost the subtlety of a Hitchcock, of somebody taking a shower, and he creeps in. You know, I mean, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I know exactly what you mean. Carpenter had more of a Hitchcock approach, mm -hmm. you know, a little bit more subtle. And uh, obviously at Halloween and you know shows like that, he uh, he displayed that. So uh, yeah, I would compare John with with Hitchcock in in that respect. Uh, I did another picture with him, but I was a second unit director and a concept designer, and that was Starman. And uh, we worked well on that together too. 
So, um, yeah. Oh, um, I was just uh, going to point out Starman is kind of having a moment now. A lot of the people that I've talked to are are starting to say, hey, that actually was a pretty good flick. And it, it was kind of glossed over when I was younger because I was very young when it came out. Uh, but it's, it just seems like a lot of people are starting to finally appreciate it. Yeah, I want to show you something. You okay, guys, sure, sure. I got all these. I don't know why I kept this. but uh, Somebody's got to. When we were uh, doing Starman, we needed a spaceship coming down. Now, you know, I've done things like that before, and close encounters, and right? so I thought, no, how about something that you really don't see? It's reflected from the sky and reflected from book. So I took a cue ball. Uh-huh. You see that? I see. Mm -hmm. And I made that the, the flying saucer that came down. So all, all right. you saw was a reflection. Of, yeah, of whatever it was around. Yeah, so I, I had somebody working for me get a get it chromed. Uh, then, who was it, CJ? Uh, I'm trying to think, who did the visual effects? It was the same people that did uh, Star Wars and stuff. And they, I, I gave them this, I said, you know, physically to shoot it. They ended up doing some sort of graphic thing, which didn't work as well as I thought, mm -hmm. because I, I thought if they had a, a miniature and you came down, you, you physically, you're aware that there's something there, but you don't see anything specific. Right. So this is a spaceship. Why I kept it, I don't know. But well, it's a piece. It's a conversation piece, and it's a piece of film history, really. Yeah. It, anyway, that. That worked, uh, and, I, and I did a, a lot of uh, second unit, that traveled all over uh, Monument Valley, whatever, just took a car. So that was it. That was my last uh, dealing with, uh, with John. Uh, Deborah, we kept friends for some time, had some projects, but she, she died fairly young. She was dating a good friend of mine, and we, we saw each other quite often, but... Uh, that, that was pretty much it. I wasn't expecting this, but when we were talking about Escape from New York, it just occurs to me that you're, you're talking about a point in your career when you're, you've got production design down. You are a master at that at that point in your life, and you're really looking at the ability to jump into directing, and, and you have an appreciation for both roles is what I'm pointing out there. Well, what happened, um, then Jaws 3 came. Sure. I, I was doing a picture called the... Ninja, Irv Kirshner was director, worked on it from New York, scouted Japan, about six, seven months. And um, the, the, it was uh, 20th Century Fox was purchased by somebody and they canceled anything that wasn't shooting or wasn't cast. So I came back and I went to see my good friend, Verna Fields, who won the Academy Award for uh, editing Jaws. And we worked together on Jaws 2 uh, when they fired the first director, and I brought Jano in. So now she's a vice president, and she's a place that she had an office and had a, another uh, spare room next to her. And I'd go visit with her and talk, and Carl Gottlieb, and we'd sort of hang out. And uh, she said, Joe, you can't believe this. The studio is going to make this movie called Jaws 3 People Zero. 
Joe Dante was going to direct it. And it's to make fun of the people that did their biggest, most successful film. Uh-huh. And making us all look like idiots, basically. E okay. And uh, from what I heard, so this was the studio's idea. They could make mm -hmm. money. If they made two. They, so three was going to be a joke. And uh, and nobody was really interested in doing three. Seneca Brown was out of it. And um, so I think, uh, I can't swear about it. I think Spielberg got a little upset about them doing this movie, making us look sort of silly. Mm -hmm. And uh, Alan Landsberg, who did That's Incredible, a lot of television sort of less expensive stuff, he got the rights to Jaws. And basically, Verna said, Joe, go see him, try to save, save the franchise because they're just making a, a joke out of it. And basically, I, I went to see him and uh, he's got this idea he wasn't going to build a shark. He's going to use stock footage of sharks. And it, it took place in a water theme park. Richard Mas Madison was the, the writer. And uh, yeah, he said, well, maybe I'll let you produce it. I said, no, either I directed or, you know. So anyway, I went scouting, basically. I'll give a quick story about that. And uh, uh, Richard and I were, were scouting these water parks. And they had this uh, film underwater in 3D with all the, the kelp and stuff. And it was really interesting going through. So we came out and he looked, he said, what, 3D? I said, no, Jaws 3D. Take the onus off the third. Nobody was doing threes, mm -hmm. maybe Rocky, but to make it 3D. Well, anyway, I did a, an illustration of the shark coming at you, uh, you know, Jaws 3D. And I, sh I uh, showed it to Landsberg. He got all excited. He said, can we, let's go to Universal and talk to Sid Scheinberg. And Sid said, oh, can I have this? And I said, of course, you're the president. I want to take it to Wasserman, Wasserman. So that initiated Jaws 3D and me directing it. And then the problem, a couple problems were that there are no good cameras. We had to make a camera and all that. But that's sort of how, how that went. And I, I don't know how we got diversed into this. Jaws, the 3D thing. But no, it, yeah. it's, um, I know uh, people don't usually refer to that movie first when they talk about the Jaws franchise, but, you know, I love experiments in film, even when they don't quite land where we think they will. So I, I am all about talking about Jaws 3D. Well, I had a problem in, in this respect because my first big directing gig, I didn't have Final Cut. Mm -hmm. So they, I cut the movie about two hours, the same as one and two. And Landsberg, all he cared about was the money, and he cut it about 25 minutes out of the movie so they could have five screenings instead of four. So my, the criticism I got was that I eliminated, I rushed the movie too much. Mm -hmm. And uh, so a lot of the personal things were cut out, and they just went for the action, action in 3D. Uh, but I must say this, uh, I have talked and done podcasts, with uh, directors like uh, Kevin Smith, I've talked to uh, uh, you know Quentin Tarantino, mm -hmm. all these, and and my writer that wrote the Jaws book. I'll show you that in a minute. They're all in like in their mid fifties. Greg Nicotero is big Jaws, mm -hmm. so they were very inspired by Jaws. Uh, they were very young. By the time Jaws three came out, they could go to the movies by themselves and. 
So the three Jaws movies were very inspirational to these young people who were now mm -hmm. successful mm -hmm. directors. Mm -hmm. So I have had very little criticism of Jaws 3 from those filmmakers, you know. That's great. So, uh, yeah, it was the critics that got me. Well, Jaws 3D made a lot of money. Uh, Jaws 4 sort of died. But, so I, I think the first three did financially quite well. Anyway, that was, uh, that, that was uh, my uh, directing thing and then went to a, a lot of development stuff that happened, didn't happen. Anyway, oh, can I show you this? Please. That's why we're there. Lovely. This is uh, a book. It's on Amazon. It's not very expensive. And uh, it's, uh, it has so much detail. I mean, it's got shots like this, you know, the making, you know, the, all the, it's got, uh, let's go create. Oh, here, this is how, when I designed, that's my sculpture of four foot sculpture. And, and this is how I laid it out based on real so anyway i just while we have your audience here uh, sure the writer dennis prince did an incredible job and it's got we wrote we did a book for catalina a couple years ago catalina ireland had uh in the museum they had a jaws exhibit for like six months and so we did a smaller book greg nicotero supplied a lot of stuff. He, he had made the three characters full size with hair on there, you know, because he has a company. And it was, and they had, they used some of my original storyboards, which are now, excuse me, pretty uh, expensive. And uh, so we had that book for some time and they were selling it there. Then uh, Dennis got Titan to buy it. So they did a hardcover and, and they've got everything in it that you know you all the storyboards i mean i did something like 200 storyboards and now for the benefit of the people who are listening to the audio version of this this is the book is called designing jaws it's a very large format book there's a lot of detail in those pictures yeah and and it also has stuff that i didn't think you'd be interested in but what you we used to do is break down this is how we you get a script and you just get a yellow pad mm -hmm. and you go page by page and as a designer you go let's see exterior brody's uh car or something and then you where was it where does he drive you know what location so that's what a production designer does he takes the script breaks it down for all the visuals and some are locations and some we have to build that and one more thing, this is people that are interested in buying uh, the storyboards or photos. That's on Joel's, uh, it's called www.joelsmovieart.com. And I'm gonna have links to all the stuff in the show notes of my uh, website. So if you're missing it here and you don't get a chance to write it down, that's a good place you can go to get it. Yeah, anyway, so that's, that's what I'm selling. Um, but it's, uh, it's been interesting, uh, Aaron, in, in this respect. I did one, two, three, then uh, I, I did a number of 
development things. I, I worked on a picture that I was going to direct for like uh, seven months and uh, did a lot of illustrations and I had a, a, a crew and uh, it was Japanese funded. And then uh, the producer that got the funding came in and said, uh, the funding stopped. That was it. Mm -hmm. So then I had to go. Eventually, I went back to work. I got married and that one didn't happen and uh, went back to, de to designing, uh, reading scripts and doing things. But, you know, uh, the industry is a very, very difficult. Uh, I guess, you know, uh, I was given a Lifetime Achievement Award at the beginning of this year by the art directors and Greg Nicotero introduced me and Steven Spielberg did a video uh, saying how great it was. We worked together and all that. So that's all very rewarding, you know, and, and uh, people say about my success and stuff. But on the other side uh, that we don't know about a lot of filmmakers and people in the business is how many, how many things that you tried to do that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. do, do you know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. You, 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 you get a script, you love the script, you develop it, you talk to actors, you talk, uh, you know, I mean, I had more conversations with Ned Tannen, who was a president, and, and we had a relationship because we were interested in cars and, uh, you know, Ferraris and stuff like that. So, and uh, then he went to become president of Paramount and I would send him scripts and it would be, oh, Joe, uh, yeah, this is pretty good. But at this time, I don't think it's the kind of project we want to do. And I've heard that so many times. At this time, it's not a project. So in the film business, uh, no matter how successful someone seems to be, uh, you can be delighted by the success, but there's so many things that you wanted to do that didn't happen. You know, uh, it's just for financial reasons or getting someone to distribute it. Uh, so it's, it's a difficult business, but I was very fortunate uh, to uh, work on different projects. My last couple projects were actually animated projects because I started, my first job was at Disney as an animator, assistant animator, you know. So it was, uh, it was fun. Right now I, I just, uh, I do sculptures, my own. Uh, different sculptures of wood and stuff occupy my time as somebody who loves movies and loves the industry but doesn't work in it in any meaningful capacity i got to tell you that some of the things that frustrate me most are reading you know a story from 10 or 20 years ago saying this project was considered but they didn't do it for whatever reason and it's like i would have loved to have seen that i wish somebody had made that movie yeah it, it's 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 incredible. Uh, yeah, I had uh, uh, an interesting film called Adventure One, where you you fly past the sun and you find another planet, which is a mirror planet to this, and mm -hmm. you find all the same people with different personalities. In mm -hmm. other words, the nice guy here in that planet, he's not a nice guy. And it was sort of frustrating, but extremely interesting. And we had a lot of really wonderful things designed. Um, I, I think Matthew Broderick, I was really trying to get because I needed a young character. And that never happened. But uh, then the money ran out. 
But uh, that's film business. Basically, I guess uh, I have to be thankful. Uh, after Jaws, one, two, and three, I totally forgot about Jaws and sharks. And I would say it wasn't until, gosh, uh, turn of this century, we had a uh, 30th year anniversary of Jaws, Martha's Vineyard. And uh, some people there, uh, one of the collectors, Jim Beller is a big collector, uh, and Chris Kisha, they're big collectors of Jaws stuff. They were saying, oh, you, you, you should, uh, you should sell copies of those storyboards. Mm -hmm. And I had given copies to Greg Nicotero and a lot of people. So I, I made copies and then they sell for like $20. But this one has an original, that's an original shark on it. So I sell that for like 50. So anyway, I, had, I didn't want to deal with all that. But Jim said, oh, I'll, I'll handle it. Just send me the stuff. And then I started getting uh, more and more people sending me, oh, can you sign this? And then I started doing shows, you know, with Jeffrey Kramer and other, and Carl McGottley. And, uh, and so we would sit there and Carl would sell, send his book, sell his book. I would sell the storyboards. And, and we did that quite often. Uh, I did one in New Jersey. I did one in, uh, Lexington, Kentucky, that's where I met Dennis Prince because he had done a book on, on monster uh, model making things. Anyway, um, so this century, it became, suddenly Jaws was alive again. And I go to these shows and these kids would say, oh, would you sign this? And you know, they're 10, 12 years old. And I said, your parents weren't born when Jaws, you know, this is a 40, so th this year has been incredible because it's the 45th anniversary. And Universal called me, very nice lady there. Said, Joe, Universal, would, they're doing a new 4K DVD. Uh, could you do podcasts and sort of promote it? So I did one with Kevin Smith. I did one, I don't know, four or five different people. I, I never part selling the, the DVD. She sent me a bunch of them and the hats and stuff. Uh, so, uh, it's, it's suddenly, and now with the pandemic, in a pandemic that we have, for some reason, people probably don't have any place to go. They're sort of, oh, look at my collection. I, I think I need this. So they sent me, uh, things to sign and, and I have to have a little note say, look, at, I, I will sign one thing. But they'll send me like six or seven things and want me to sign it for nothing. Sure. And, you know, at the shows, I get 20 bucks. And I, said, I said, but, you know, to be fair about it, some of the stuff I see on e eBay, you know. So I will sign one. And, uh, but in the last, you know, month, couple months, I've been getting so many. I got one, uh, Aaron, yesterday from Russia. I have wow. never you know, and big fan. So that was pretty fun. So I, I signed a couple for that guy. And uh, so, yeah, so, so Jaws has come alive a lot this year because of the anniversary and uh, the new DVD and signing. And I did have people, uh, two collectors that collected a, a lot of 
drawings and photos and one guy came and had me sign like 200 things you know which he paid me for mm -hmm. the guy shipped me a whole bunch of stuff so it, it's it's really weird that you go years without any recognition and then suddenly 45 years later it's alive again you know so that's what's happening well, I usually try to end each show by making sure that we track where you're going in the future so people can keep tabs on you. Are you still doing these art shows or do you have plans to once the pandemic is past? Yes, I, I would I would do them. Uh, right now, we can't do them, you know. Sure. There was one I was supposed to do in England uh, and I, I didn't feel like traveling. That was uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. And then uh, it just got they're just canceling all those things yeah because there's so many people they're all together and they line up and you sign and it's very nice uh, you know uh we uh, we did a book signing uh in this uh, uh sacramento because dennis lives up there and greg nicotero was with me and we did it at a old bookstore and uh, we had a line of people you know and, and greg greg wrote the uh greg wrote the introduction so he he's a he's a big jaws fan and uh i'm trying to think of my uh, yeah here's a picture with greg and that's a good shot right there and uh roy arbogast and myself uh and, and we just had i was amazed how many people we had uh that uh wanted to buy the book and big jaws fans and there's and oh i've seen it a hundred times and you know anyways timeless. in the meantime now i'm i'm just doing different sculptures i like to sculpture because i i did i did the, the shark the small one i worked with the nectiologist to get it accurate i did some aliens on close encounters so in retiring i just went back to to sculpting and it was fun I would love to sit here and talk with you more about your sculpting and your animated background, and maybe we can get you back on here. I'd love to do just that. Um, hey. But you got your book and your website. Do you have a social media presence at all that you follow, or do you just prefer to stick to email? Just pretty much email. Uh, Fair enough. There is uh, uh, Instagram. Okay. I like Instagram. Yeah, on Instagram. My daughter set that up. But, uh, sure. Anyway, that's basically it, or you get my email. Uh, that's it awesome awesome well, i'll make sure your instagram feed gets linked in the show notes as well joe thank you so much this has been a pleasure and an honor and i got a whole lot out of this and i can't wait for it to go live so it was good nice talking to you nice nice talking to you best wishes take care i would like to thank joe for being my guest today and i would like to thank you for listening Let's get to the community building part of the show, and if I remind you, the community building tips I give are things that cost you nothing and take less than five minutes of your time. And here's one that I really like giving out there, and I'd give it out more, but I don't want to bore y'all. Say thank you. And I don't mean to me, although that's always nice, but we have somebody like Joe who has a book on the market, and they come on the show and they're very gracious about talking about these really great books they're releasing. If you happen to buy that book and read it, reach out to that author and say, thank you. 
for writing this book. And if you want to mention thank you for being on my podcast, I would appreciate that because it means a lot to me that somebody like Joe takes the time to come on Hungry Trilobite. I'm not asking for your money. I'm glad you gave it to Joe to buy his book. We have some fantastic authors on this show, and if you buy their books, reach out to them and thank them. Don't forget you can subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, YouTube, and we are syndicated on Realm of the Mist, a fantastic podcast network. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.